for our sermon text then today, you can turn to Genesis chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. I've been preaching through Genesis, the book of Genesis, and in chapter 1, we saw how God created man, uh, male and female, uh, after his own image, and they have that in common, both men and women, and uh, they both in common have the, great, the creation mandate. Uh, in chapter 2, uh, it reveals more about their distinctiveness and how they fit together, uh, how they participate in that same mission differently and in unity. So in chapter 2 here, uh, we'll find the institution of marriage. Um, it's not only the institution of marriage, though. It's also the creation of uh, man and woman distinctly. And what we see ex- especially expressed in marriage here is going to be true of man and woman generally. Um, so while I'm also going to speak about marriage today, uh, we also find in this passage the foundations of what we might call manhood and womanhood. But let me go ahead and read uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will, make a, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. Lord God, creator of all things, creator of, uh, of us, We come to you as your people whom you have brought to you through grace. We pray that you would teach us through your word, that you would bless this reading and preaching to our edification, to our growth, uh, that we might grow in knowledge and also lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Today, the topic of marriage uh, can bring a lot of problems to mind. Uh, The passage that is before us shows marriage before sin entered the world. But of course, we no longer live in the garden. And in this day in particular, uh, we might find the frequency of divorce, uh, the redefining of marriage to include homosexual unions, uh, the fact that marriage is often put off by cohabitating couples or avoided altogether as a killjoy that increases strife and limits freedom, 
or it's turned into a killjoy through uh, unresolved resentment and conflict. And uh, despite that, despite the sin that can make marriage miserable, despite the sins that can destroy marriage, despite the attempt to give the title of marriage to non-marriages, yet the institution of marriage endures. Despite man's corruption and by God's common grace, it brings some blessing even to those who are dead in their sins. It exists throughout the world, despite corruptions and uh, corrupt variations and violations. It exists throughout humanity, throughout the world. It is a natural institution, uh, one that is adorned and supported by each culture. But something that pre-existed every culture. It's not a creation of culture. It is what gave birth to each one, literally and metaphorically. But in a fallen world, it's especially important to affirm that marriage is a good thing. It was designed by God, it was instituted by God, and it's given by God for your good. Do not blame his creation uh, for the sins of man. If you have appreciation for what God has given you in marriage, if you look beyond human sin to how it fulfills its original purposes, It might help you to bear more patiently when that is needed. In fact, marriage is even more useful in the present age than it was originally. How is that? Well, today marriage has the additional usefulness that it can help prevent sexual immorality. It provides a good and legitimate outlet for a desire which is otherwise sinful. Uh, But as man was originally created, he had no sinful desires. And if marriage is designed as a good thing, we ought to therefore seek out that goodness. When a train goes off the tracks, it can be quite destructive, right? Destructive to those who are in the train, destructive to those who are around the train. But the train was not designed to be destructive. When you learn why the train was designed for good and not for harm, you see what needs to happen, which is to get it back on the tracks, to bring it back to its design. So also for marriage. Proverbs certainly recognizes it can be hurtful and miserable due to man's sin, but it does not have to be like that. Originally, it was bliss. And even now, can recover most of that original blessing. How? By putting it back on the tracks. By bringing it back to God's original design. And how can a man do that? How can a person be able to do that? Not only by God's general restraint on sin, but especially through the grace of Jesus Christ. Grace does not destroy nature. It perfects it and glorifies it. He works in his people by the word and by the spirit. And Genesis 2 is God's word, which instructs us concerning how God designed and instituted marriage so that he might train us as his children in his ways. And so, here in Genesis 2, we find that God instituted marriage as a good and blessed estate, and therefore we ought to honor marriage in accord with his design. And this is God's message for his people. So first, let me look at the fact that God instituted marriage as a good and blessed estate. And in doing so, first let's review the text 
what is said here? Well, in verse 18, it begins with a problem. Everything is good, is very good, is good, until verse 18, that it was not good that the man should be alone. There was a problem. Man is alone. Adam is the only one of his kind. And there was a solution. God determines to make uh, for him a helper that is fit for him. Um, each of those phrases is important. It's just, uh, someone to help him, uh, to give aid and support. Uh, it is a helper that is made for him. And so this would be one that, uh, that would uh, follow him and that he would uh, lead and bring her into the calling which he had. And it is a helper who is fit for him, uh, who corresponds to him, who is complementary to him, not like the animals, which might have been of some help, but were not uh, fit for him. Well, before God go ahead, goes ahead and solves the problem, he first brings the problem to Adam's mind. He teaches Adam that he needs what God is about to provide him. Uh, he, uh, is, in this way, makes Adam appreciative of what God is going to give him uh, so that he does not take it for granted. And he gives him a task. Now, in part, this task is part of Adam's task generally to uh, subdue the earth, to have dominion over the creatures. He is to name the animals. But it also would teach him a lesson that he was alone. But he is supposed to name the animals. And as we find later in this chapter and throughout Scripture, naming was more than just coming up with random syllables to give to them, but it was to study them, to identify them, to classify them. We have here Adam the scientist who is now uh, studying God's creation, discerning their natures, giving them their names. Um, probably not all the subspecies that we have today, but the basic kinds that were brought to him by God so that he uh, looks at them and examines them and names them. But in this way, he learns about the world in which he lived and learned that for him there was not a helper fit for him. All the other creatures were male and female, and yet there was none like him. And so, in verse 23, sorry, verse 21, God begins to solve the problem. He causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man. He is almost dead, as it were. He is down there, out for the count, uh, and while he slept, one of his ribs is taken from his side. The place is closed up with flesh, so we have here flesh and bone that's been taken out of his side, and God builds a woman from it. Uh, he uh, fashions, he makes a woman out of his rib. Uh, as later commentators will note, she was not taken from his head to rule over him, not from his feet to be trampled underneath, but from his side to be cared for by him uh, side by side. She was taken from his flesh and, blood, uh, flesh and bones, and so when she is brought by God to the man, uh, joined to the man by God, Adam, then in verse 23, recognizes God's gift. He rejoices. This at last, you know, he's been waiting for this now. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He describes her as he has been uh, looking at the animals and figuring out what to name them, so he describes the woman and, and gives her a name that befits her. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Of course, using Hebrew words, uh, isha, uh, because she was taken out of ish. Uh, the words sound similar. Uh, of course, they do in English too, so it, it works. Uh, woman and man. 
And so he names her. Uh, that is significant as well. Uh, shows a degree of, uh, of headship and responsibility that he takes for her. And yet she is not like the animals. She is one like him and joins him. And so in verse 24, it describes that not only does this tell the story of Adam and Eve, but it establishes something for humanity, that this is the model marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is telling us what will happen. This is uh, instituting an ordinance, just as God would institute the Sabbath, just as he would institute work, so he institutes marriage as a creation ordinance, <clears throat> that the man will uh, hold fast to his wife, prioritize his wife, uh, that they will become one flesh. They will be, as they were taken from one flesh, so they will be brought back together as one. The man recognizes the woman as part of himself. And then verse 25, uh, that Note that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That brings to mind the recognition again that that was the condition before sin entered the world, uh, that they did live in a world unlike ours, that they had no guilt, no shame, something that would change once they sinned. And so this is what the passage presents us. There was a problem, a solution. Adam is taught that there is a problem. He is appreciative, therefore, when God creates the woman so that the two of them become one. And this uh, it becomes a model for marriages ever since. Not only that, but it also, as Ephesians 5 teaches, a model for the relation of Christ and his church, uh, that it is an image of Christ and his church. Uh, that there's in Ephesians 5, reference back to Genesis 2 of Adam and Eve, and it brings three different parallels. First of all, that Adam and Eve are the model for all marriages, that Adam and Eve are the model for Christ and his church, and Adam and Eve are modeled after a, a head and body, that they are one flesh. Um, just as Christ is with the church, we are members of his body, just as the wife is of her husband, that he is the head, and she is part of himself, and he loves himself when he loves her. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul will hearken back to Genesis 2. In fact, Genesis 2 gets a lot of references in the New Testament. There he says that man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. The word helper itself does not necessarily indicate any note of subordination. God is our helper. The word is used that way too. But it's more the fact that she was made for him. Uh, I will make him a helper that indicates some order here. Undercurds Paul's point that the man is the head of a woman, that the woman is the glory of the man. But it shouldn't lead to pride on man's part. It should only make her more important to the man. And Paul goes on to say that neither is independent from one another. For as woman came from man, so man now is born of woman, and that all things are from God. And furthermore, the woman was created for man, but it doesn't mean that woman was created for man's self-satisfying whims. No, he had a task at hand to glorify God by working and keeping the garden, to be fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it. And she was necessary for that work. Just as the lieutenant subordinated to the captain, not just for the captain's sake, but for the cause of the army. Or just as the body is subordinated to the head, not just so that the head feels good, but that the whole person can flourish and fulfill the work in unity. 
So the goal for both man and woman is the creation mandate. But they approach it differently. The man is given the task and therefore receives a beloved helper. The woman found the man and therefore received a task. And therefore the man ought to lead his wife to serve the Lord and to build a household for the glory of God. So in this passage we find the institution of marriage. God instituted marriage as a lifelong union of one man and one woman bound exclusively to one another. He makes of the two of them one flesh. Verse 24 describes what happens when people get married. Even if they violate it right away, they have become one flesh. Married people have become one flesh, therefore they ought to be one flesh and live like it. It is a design that is true regardless of what you do with it. And you can live up to it or you can violate it. We find here that marriage is a union of a man and a woman. Uh, The woman was made to correspond with the man. They are complementary. Marriage cannot be two of the same sex. Notice also that God made one woman for Adam, indicating that polygamy is a distortion of his design, not intended. Rather, marriage is designed as the delightful union of two complementary companions who belong to each other, who are committed to each other, who can depend upon each other to be there the next day and the next until God separates them. For it's God who joined them. As Jesus says, going back to this chapter, God has put them together. Only God, therefore, can break them apart. Let, man, let not man put them asunder. It is a union sealed by God. Each promises faithfulness until God separates them by death. Marriage is designed for stability. It's designed for security. It's designed for belonging. designed for rest. It's not merely based on consent. It is, but more than that, it's based on commitment. It's based on covenant. And so as one flesh, the couple ought to cultivate unity and harmony uh, with one another, relationally, sexually, spiritually. In the marriage union, the man is the head and ought to love and care for his wife. And the woman is a helper fit for him and made for him who ought to put herself under him in his direction. Our confession of faith and the traditional liturgies of the church have often uh, summarized the purposes of marriage um, for the mutual good or mutual help of husband and wife, you know, their, their own mutual good, their shared work to fulfill the creation mandate gives the man a wife and the wife a husband. It gives uh, each a permanent support and companion. It was also ordained for the increase of mankind with legitimate offspring, uh, therefore serving the good of mankind, the good of your nation, the good of your family, to build it up. Marriage was also ordained for the increase of God's household. Of course, originally God's household was the same as mankind, but uh, it's a little different today. Um, It's an additional reason to increase the church, as Malachi says, to raise up godly offspring. And in verse 24, it also mentions that the man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Um, The point here is not so much location as it is about priority of relationship. 
What could be stronger than the relation of parents to child, affirmed even in the fifth commandment? And yet, even closer than that bond is that of husband and wife. It's not saying that it doesn't require a man to stay at his father's house until marriage. That might be wise in some cases, but it's not required by this verse. Likewise, it does not require a man to physically leave his father's house when he gets married. Again, that might be wise, but not required by this verse. That certainly would be news to most of the people in the Bible. The verse does not teach that a man's responsibility to honor and support his parents ends when he gets married. He's still obligated by the fifth commandment. But what does it mean? The verse asserts that the priority of the marriage bond over all other human relationships, even over the relationship between parent and child. It's important that both the married couple and their parents respect that priority so that jealousy and resentment and distance is not created in the marriage. So there is an important way in that the man ought to leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife. This verse also teaches that the child's relation to his parents will change. Uh, that parents should raise their children towards responsibility, towards the freedom of maturity, to inculcate uh, their uh, principles in their children so that they embrace them as their own. So a man ought to leave his, uh, shall leave or will leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God created marriage, he instituted it, and he made it as a good thing. For it was not good that man should be alone. The second point, then, is that we should do something with this. We shouldn't just note that, check that off, move on. But what do we do with this fact, having been taught it here in Scripture? Uh, The first point would be to honor and support marriage, regardless of whether you are married or not. As Paul says, or maybe not Paul, whoever wrote Hebrews, as Hebrews 13 says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. So, as the whole body of Christ, encourage those who are married and speak well of God's design, uphold this with honor. You know, we we do that on people's wedding days that we gather to support the couple, to witness to that marriage, to rejoice in that marriage, but we shouldn't stop after they get married, uh, but continue. In fact, that's one reason why we witness marriages, to be a witness afterwards. I saw you take that promise. I saw you make that vow uh, to encourage them, to continue to praise and encourage their love. Uh, also to, to promote good practices and habits. A lot of what marriage counseling ends up going into is simply sanctification. You know, bear the fruits of the Spirit and, and exercise that towards one another. Uh, a lot of verses that we associate with marriage, like 1 Corinthians uh, 13 and love, is written generally to all Christians. It's just that in marriage you spend a lot of time very close to one person, and it's very important that you exercise Christian virtue toward them. And all the people of God can set that example and encourage those ways. And on the other hand, don't join in the world in belittling marriage or mocking it. The, marriage, uh, the ministry of the church also has a role in supporting the marriages of Christians, not only by giving premarital counseling and officiating weddings, 
but by encouraging those who are married to keep them accountable, to give them somewhere to go for help when problems arise. And now if you are single, uh, if you're not called to singleness, if uh, there's one way to honor marriage, and that is to prepare. It's worth preparing for. Uh, honor it by uh, preparing for this estate. Let it be a spur to you who are young uh, to seek out maturity and growth and wisdom and skill so that you might be ready when that day comes. And finally, appreciate the good that marriage provides to all of us, the stability it gives to the whole society. When God instituted marriage, he planted the seed of the rest of the human race. Each marriage creates a web of new family relations, usually goes on to produce and care for children, the future of that society. Consider all the, you know, the story of Ruth uh, is, is all about in-laws and the family relations and how they help one another. It's not the only point of Ruth, but something that is pointed out. It creates new obligations between people that bind society together. Marriage produces a unified society that benefits uh, the unmarried. We can delight in the marriages of our parents as good for us. Marriage joins each member with his neighbor in a brotherhood for all of us came ultimately from this marriage described here in Genesis 2. So honor marriage. Then for husbands and wives, hold fast to one another. As the text says, cleave unto one another. A man should hold fast to his wife above all created beings. And that is the created order. He will cleave to her. They, they will become one flesh. That's the design of marriage. And that's true in every case. Uh, even if it's broken right away. This fact calls each person to live up to it, not to violate the ordinance, but to make it a blessing. When a husband and wife fail to become close to one another, it's a bad thing because for better or for worse, they have been bound together as one. When a person receives a heart transplant, it's essential that the heart and the body work together or else you don't have a working heart. They have become one flesh, and so they better work together as one flesh. You might even stretch the analogy, and you know, the body typically re- rejects you know, heart transplants, and you have to take medicine to get it to receive it. We need God's grace to get these things to work together. Maybe that's pushing the analogy too far, but I hope you get the point. You have become one, so don't become dead weight on the other person. Act as one. Grow close to one. As Jesus said in Matthew 19, you must not separate what God has joined together. You must remember that your deeds impact your spouse. Your spouse's deeds impact you because you're one. As Proverbs 12 says, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. She's going to be a crown or rottenness in his bones. She's going to be one or the other though, because she's part of him. The same for the man. Which will you be? Will you be a blessing? So cultivate unity with one another. If something's wrong with your head or something's wrong with your body, you don't say, oh, I don't care, I'll get a new head. Right? No, you care. You seek to resolve what's wrong because that's you and you're stuck with it. Likewise, strive for unity, for reconciliation, for good communication. You're joined together. And you can make that glorious and a blessing or a burden. In the same way, show honor and love to each other. You're not in competition with one another. 
the good of one is the good of the other. Show love and honor in the way to, that you speak to one another so that you don't disgrace yourself. Just as gears and hinges need oil to run smoothly, so husband and wife who are so connected to each other need to immerse themselves in the oil of love and patience and gentleness with one another um, or else it will start squeaking. It will need that oil. And as one flesh, husbands and wives ought to be sexually faithful and loving to one another. As 1 Corinthians 7.4 says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. They have mutual, exclusive right to one another. Therefore, delight yourselves in one another. Our society treats sexuality very casually, but Scripture does justice to reality when it sets covenantal commitment as the only fitting context for sexual relations, not, not merely consent. Romantic love, sexual union, is not meant for temporary arrangements. It's just not designed for that, but for exclusive, lifelong bonds. The kind in which a person can say, as the bride does in the Song of Songs, my beloved is mine and I am his. Or, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Or, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave. These things are true for both husband and wife. And then also attend to your own part in accord with God's design, so that the woman, that you subject yourself to your husband. Uh, Scripture makes that plain. There's no getting around it. To do so patiently, reverently, confidently. Do so confidently, knowing this is your calling from God, that he delights to see this. And what greater joy can there be in doing something you know God is pleased with? Do so reverently as to your head, honoring the office that God has given your husband. Give him deference and obedience, speaking to him respectfully, remembering the example of Sarah who called her husband Lord. Do so even when he does not deserve it, uh, because that is who he is, your husband. Scripture even says to fear your husband. Of course, in the same chapter in Ephesians 5, it says to fear Christ. It's the same type of fear, not a timid, fleeting kind of fear, but a respectful, reverent uh, fear. Do so patiently as well to be that trustworthy help to your husband as a woman of strength and of virtue. To the man, you ought to care for your wife as for your own body, as you would care for your own rib by your side. Bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. As Adam here delights in his wife, as the, appreciates the gift that she is to him, this at last is bone of my bones. And express it. He used words as his wife approached him to express that love and delight. He didn't let her guess. Scripture teaches that the husband is the head of his wife. And you can misuse that office with harshness. You can abdicate or neglect that office. You shouldn't, but you could. Or you could fulfill it with love. Jesus demonstrated the way to fulfill that office. He is the head of the church. And he looked not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He fulfilled it with love and sacrifice. Even when his wife was far from deserving it. Even when we were sinners, 
Christ died for us, so that he could present to himself a bride that was without spot or wrinkle. But she did not start out that way. So be patient with your wife and to love her throughout thick and thin. As Christ treats the church, so treat your wife as your own body. Therefore, to nourish and cherish her. Nourish means, you know, to, to, to give her uh, support, to, to care for her, to provide for her, to cherish, to value, to appreciate her, like you do your body. And as you care for your own flesh, care for her. Live with her according to knowledge, showing honor to her as the weaker vessel. So value her help. Don't take her for granted. Don't frustrate her with uh, inconsistency, fits of anger or fickleness. But lead her gently with clear communication so that together you might serve the Lord and serve others. Again, the marriage is not about either one of you, uh, ultimately. It is about the glory of God. So give her ways to help. If she is to be a helper, consider her advice. She is a help to you. Give her wise directions and then encourage and praise her in her work to nourish her with your words. Surprise and cherish one another. Receive each other as a gift of God for your good. The other one having strengths and abilities that you do not possess and which are useful to you. Let this appreciation and love therefore cover a multitude of sins. So in conclusion, marriage is a good thing. Marriage is created by God. Yet sin can corrupt all good things. And we struggle with that in this present age. Therefore, rely upon Jesus Christ, the Savior. You who are married, guard yourselves. Fix your resolve that you might be faithful and loving to the end, that you might uh, live according to that original design and to be a good image of Christ and his church. Amid all the turmoil and confusion and perversity of this world, keep your home an outpost of what is good, what is true, what is beautiful. You have your realm. Guard it. And keep it, make it fruitful and a blessing to others, a little taste of the garden here in this world. Strive to make your marriage a good image of Christ and the church, and remember the truth that that image teaches us, that Jesus Christ is the husband and savior of us, the church, that we are members of his body. Though you and I were disgraceful and rebellious, he took on our flesh and blood and became our head. He died our death. He rose for your justification. He joined you to him by his spirit so that we are members of his body, bone of his bones, and flesh of his flesh. So may he guide us, therefore, in his ways by his grace, that we might walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. As he restores the ancient glory of God's image in us, may he also restore the goodness and blessedness of marriage to your benefit and to his glory. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for providing for us, for being so generous to us in your creation of man. You did not give us a barren earth, a mere existence, but you filled the earth with good things. You gave us one day in seven to rest and to rejoice in you. You gave man a wife, and you brought the wife to her husband. We thank you for the goodness that you have designed in this world, and we are sorry for corrupting your good gifts. 
We pray that by your grace you would turn us away from sin, uh, from the way that sin can feed off of sin, uh, the way that frustrations can lead to uh, bitterness. But we pray that you would grant us love and gratitude, that you would make your people uh, a manifestation of your goodness, a light to the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.